0: Uh, due to the uh, traveling and so many out of town during the summer months, I've, I'm going to launch on a short uh, sermon series on Jonah and we're selecting Jonah because I think the themes are so relevant uh, to us today, themes like judgment, mission, revival, resistance uh, to the will of God, uh, depression, uh, reluctance uh, to serve him. All of these are jumbled in together in the book of Jonah. And I think it's a timely book because of the rapid moral and religious changes that are taking place around us. Uh, The dominant, though imperfect, Christian outlook of previous generations uh, is eroding and has eroded. Our moral code, our standards of behavior uh, have been widely rejected. Um, The culture has become non-Christian and even anti-Christian. And so that raises the question, what is our message uh, to our uh, fellow citizens uh, today? What is our message to our world? Or, or do we have any message at all to our world? Or do we just ignore the world uh, that is around us? A word or two about this setting. Um, Jonah was a prophet of Israel uh, who served under the reign of Jeroboam II, whose years were 782 to 753 uh, B.C. This would put him a couple of hundred years before Plato, for example. Um, Israel's located on the highway that uh, connects uh, the great Middle Eastern kingdoms to the north, like the Hittites and the Assyrians and the Babylonians and then the Persians, and then later the Greeks and the Romans uh, to, the, uh, to Egypt to the south. And so there's this... <coughs> There's this movement of the empires back and forth. And uh, Israel is on that highway and so constantly under threat either from the north and one of the great empires or from the south uh, to Egypt, always at risk. And yet during this period, the period of Jonah, uh, the the people of Israel were prospering and had uh, experienced some uh, military success and we're enjoying a period of peace. And so God sends out Jonah. What are we to learn from that? So I have a couple of points that I want to make from our passage. We could call these expositions of Jonah. We also could call them um, themes from Jonah. We'll see how it develops. Uh, Point number one is God is watching and judging the nations. So verse 1, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of uh, Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Uh, Notice uh, what God says about Nineveh. This is great Nineveh. Nineveh is a great city. Uh, That's not a pejorative term. It's a a, a positive description. There's a recognition here of the greatness of Nineveh. Uh, Nineveh was a city in what is today northern Iraq. It's across the Tigris River from uh, Mosul. That was in the news a few years back when we were at war in Iraq. It's on the eastern side of the Tigris. Uh, Nineveh was, that is, and that's where its ruins are. According to human calculations, it's great. Great in power. Great in its architectural achievements. Great in its military prowess. Uh, as the people of God were able to recognize greatness, we recognize New York as, uh, in one sense, the capital of the world, and the importance of Wall Street and Broadway. We can recognize Washington D.C. as the political capital of New York, is the economic capital. D.C. is the, you know, the political capital of the world, and <clears throat> noteworthy for its. Uh, you know, it's a great uh, government buildings and the political power that's exercised there. Uh, we can recognize the greatness of Los Angeles with Hollywood and San Francisco with the Silicon Valley and uh, the te- technology that has altered so much our lives in uh, the last generation. There's a greatness to these places, and we don't need to be hesitant to, to recognize that there is a, an element of greatness that can be appreciated about um, about the world that is around us, even if it's an unbelieving world. And so he sends Jonah to Nineveh. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For what? For the evil that has come up before me. Call out against it. Go to that hated and feared city of Nineveh because of their evil, because of their wicked. They need to be warned. They need to be denounced. So what were they guilty of? I think a uh, convenient handy on understanding what the prophets throughout the Old Testament are ad- addressing uh, can come under the category of the three eyes: immorality, idolatry, and injustice. So whether they're addressing Israel or Judah or w- one of the surrounding nations, and yes, they do address the surrounding nations. Uh, they address the Babylonians. They, they address the Assyrians. Uh, they address the Persians and the Edomites and, uh, and, and uh, the, the Ammonites and the Moabites. They, they address the nations that are around them. And whether it's at home with Israel and Judah or it's in foreign countries, uh, they are identifying immorality, the immoral behavior of the pagan world or of the people of, people of God in the homeland of, the, of, of, of his people. He addresses them for their injustice. Or the unequal application of the law, the preferential treatment that was being extended to some and not to others, the partiality toward the powerful uh, and, and the rich and the influential over against uh, uh, the, the powerless. And then there was their idolatry, the worship of false gods, often in a particularly heinous form, uh, including human sacrifice, child sacrifice, infant sacrifice, offering up their uh, children to Molech. and so this is the this, this is the problem with Nineveh, and it has become particularly bad. the 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 the, the Assyrians, the capital uh, of which is Nineveh, were a particularly brutal uh, people. Uh, they would uh, they would attack, conquer. Um, and then torture many of their, uh, those that they had conquered, and then deport whole peoples uh, to distant lands, uprooting them and separating them uh, from, from their civilization. Uh, relatives say to the Babylonians, they were a brutal people in a, what was a brutal ancient world that had no concept whatsoever of human rights or the universal rights of humanity. No concept whatsoever emerges out of antiquity about the rights, the so-called rights of man. You have to come uh, to the revelation of God in the Bible, to the laws of Moses, and in particular, to the spread of Christianity before anybody recognizes uh, the rights of foreign people, people that are not, uh, not uh, uh, people that are not our people. No, they're just subject to brutality. They're enslaved or, or, or they're, um, they're annihilated. Genocide was common in, in, in the ancient world. And so cry out against them, he says. And cry out against them even though they're a foreign people. Why? Because God is the Lord both of nature and of the nations. And so Jonah is being given this privilege. This is not punishment for Jonah. This is a privilege. He's to travel the five to 600 miles as the the crow flies north uh, out of uh, the land of Israel, north to uh, Assyria, to the capital of Nineveh, and begin to call out against them and reveal their evil and their wickedness. (coughs) Those of you who have been here for a long time will recognize that Whenever I come back from a couple of weeks off, I cough. It's just in the nature of things. I don't know what it is, but my throat gets used to not speaking, and so it's irritated when I do speak, and so I'm coughing. So I hope you can ignore that even as I point it out to you. All right. I think sometimes that we imagine that God is indifferent uh, to the behavior of the unbelieving world. whether the the unbelieving are within our own uh, nation or whether the unbelieving are across borders. I I think there's this inclination to think that God is just indifferent to that. He cares about his church. He cares about us and our behavior, but we're not to concern ourselves with their behavior. Uh, There's this sense that we need to just live and let live. We need to mind our own business. We need to not get involved in what people out there are doing. Let them do what they will do. Let God deal with them. Let's deal with ourselves. Let's Let's clean up our own house. Let's remember that judgment begins with the household of God, like the Bible says. And so I think there's this inclination to say eh, that we just need to butt out of the business of the world and and, and leave be, uh, and just concern ourselves with ourselves. But what we see here is this is not at all the case. God is addressing the nations. God is addressing the Assyrians, the Ninevites, and he addresses us. He's concerned about our immorality, our idolatry and our injustice of which there is plenty. And we need to uh, awaken to that. We'll get to the end of our verses here. We're going to see Jonah's jo- asleep. Yeah, I think a lot of us are asleep. Is, uh, is our, our nation particularly in, indulged in, in immorality? Yes, it is. There's been a total breakdown of moral standards in, in, in our nation. I think all the categories are gone. There is no longer that which is immoral. In, 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 in many ways that's true. There just are no, no standards at all anymore. All the barriers are down. And in fact, we are the major exporters of immorality around the world through the internet and pornography, breaking down moral standards everywhere, breaking down marriage. Uh, idolatry. You know, we've been looking at the Ten Commandments. If you define God as one's ultimate concern, what are people really serving, worshiping? Where are they spending their time, their money, their energy, their effort? That's their God. So, if you define God not as a traditional deity, though there's plenty of that, uh, false religions, but if you just define God as the ultimate concern of an, uh, of people, there's a lot of idolatry. We've seen that as we worked our way through the Ten, Ten Commandments. Making idols out of things, making idols out of pleasure, making idols out of power, out, making idols out of science, and so forth, and, and so on. Yeah, there's a lot of idolatry. How about injustice? Is the law in our land un, 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 unequally applied to the powerful? And I'm not talking about the wealthy here. I'm talking about the people who have power and influence Are there two systems of justice, one for those who have power and then the one that applies to everybody else? Seems to me that there is. So how do we stack up against the three eyes that bring down the judgment of God upon Nineveh? I don't think we're doing too well when it comes to these things. We have normalized the perverse. We have become defiant of God and his law. So what are the people of God supposed to do? Well, according to the opening of Jonah, we're to go to the nations. We're to go to our nation, to our people, and call out against it. That's the language, call out against it. There's, there's this warning that we're supposed to issue. We're to name sin, define it, denounce it, and warn against it, and call the nation to repentance, and warn our people that God is watching. There there is forgiveness, but we must repent and turn to Christ. The signs are all around us everywhere that the whole civilization is unraveling. I hope that you see the evidence of that. I hope that you're aware of that. What are we to do? We're to go to the unbelieving world, whether it's within our borders or beyond our borders, and warn, and identify what we're talking about, and, and call the world to repentance. So that's, that's number one. Number, number one is God is watching, and God is judging the nations not just us not just the church he's concerned about the nations and he requires that we be concerned about the nations about the unbelieving world within our borders and outside of our borders number 2 god's people are called to go but they prove often to be very reluctant i recently read the just published biography of tim tim keller uh, tim had a you know a highly significant ministry in New York over the last several decades, about 30 years in in New York City. But back in 1988, he did not want to go, according to his biographer. He and Kathy had young children. And this was New York before the implementation of broken window policing, which led to drastic reductions in crime. New York was crime-laden. And he just had been named professor of uh, practical theology at Westminster Seminary. He, was in, he and Kathy were enjoying their church and their neighborhood. And frankly, he did not feel like he was up to the job of going to New York City. But at the same time, he was reading William Gurnall's Christian Complete uh, uh, Armor. If you've heard me talk about that, I just think it's absolutely fabulous uh, book. All 1,100 pages of it. Double column, tiny print, absolutely extraordinary. Page after page of insight and illumination and inspiration and challenge, and it never get, becomes repetitious. It's just extraordinary, soul edifying book. Well, he's reading that, and he comes to realize, uh, in in his own words, that he had to stop being a coward and begin to live bravely. Stop being a coward. Quit worrying about the dangers. Quit worrying about what you're going to have to give up. Quit worrying about what's going to be the impact. Obey the call of God. He'd spent months working his way through the list of possible candidates. He was part of the team that was looking into getting this church going in New York. He's looking at candidates all the while wondering, am I called or not called? He didn't want to be called. Finally recognized, you are called. And, and so was necessary to go here with Jonah, verse three. Jonah rose and to flee to Tarshish. Flee to Tarshish. What's Tarshish? Tarshish is some distance place, not really identifiable, but it's off in the distance, the islands, this far distance from Israel. So he Jonah rose to flee from Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, which is present-day Jaffa. He found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Why does he flee from God? Not just from the, the, the assignment that God had given to him, but from God himself, who was the requiring it of him. Well, we can speculate. Uh, I would imagine he was frightened. Like, these Ninevites were, a, like I say, these are a brutal, brutal people. There's no telling what they would have done, probably slowly dismembered him. That was, a, that was the risk. That, would, that's a, that was the possibility that he was facing. We're not t- talking about them just criticizing him. Uh, we're talking about, you know, being drawn and quartered by the Ninevites so that's one possibility the other the futility they'll never listen to me they'll just mock me this is the kind of thing that uh, that we say uh, isn't it uh, we're, we're fearful of being you know just mocked for what we believe being socially ostracized because of our convictions being thought weird and strange and uh, ridiculed and uh, so that's what that's what uh, could be at work here so on the one hand you know, there's a, there's an there's a understandable fear of, of, of harm that will come to him. I think that's what the Chinese Christians face today. That they're going to be imprisoned. I think that uh, Middle Eastern Christians fear worse than that that they'll be imprisoned, that they'll be tortured, that they'll be executed. Uh, so there are places in the world where, you know, there is the physical harm. Then there's other places like here where there's there's the potential for social harm that will come to us. Uh, we won't be part of the in-group. We won't be accepted by people if we open our mouths and, and, and do, do what, is it, what is it you want me to do, Lord? You want me to go there and, and call out against it for their evil that has come up before me? You want me to tell them they're a bunch of sinners? You want me to tell them that they're evil? You want want me to tell them that they're under condemnation and facing judgment and destruction? That's what you want me to tell them? That's not going to work. They're not going to listen to me. They're not interested in what I have to say. They'll think I'm a nutcase at best. And then the other thing is really the most likely of all, chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah thinks they deserve to get destroyed. Don't you realize what those Assyrians have done to us over the years and other people? They're so evil, they're so wicked, they are so brutal. I'm hoping they won't repent. I want them to be destroyed. I can't wait. I'm licking my chops in anticipation of fire coming down like it did on Sodom and Gomorrah and totally annihilating the Assyrians so that they are reduced to dust, so that they disappear from the face of the earth like the disciples when they asked Jesus whether or not they should call fire down upon those who, who, who had, had, had ridiculed them. So we can understand that outlook. We can understand that mentality. If we've ever been a target of the unbelieving, we can understand, what, what, God, Lord, are you, repent and save? No, that's not what they deserve. They deserve damnation. They deserve destruction. You're a gracious God. I'm afraid you're going to forgive them and spare them. And I don't want that. I want to see them destroyed. So, in what ways uh, are we reluctant? I think in some similar ways, particularly, we just want to keep to ourselves. We want to be quiet. We don't want to disrupt our comforts or draw attention to ourselves. We want to just go around, uh, go about our own business. Why is that not a good strategy? Let me give you two reasons why. Minding our own business is not a good strategy, number one, because God's honor is at stake. He is being dishonored. He's being defied. He's despised. He is blasphemed. He's being mocked in the world. We care about that. We want to see it stopped. That's why we can't just ignore what's going on all around us as though we're, 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 we're no big deal. Not, not not, our concern. No, it is our concern. Why? Because God is our God. And so we care about the way he is perceived and the way people are speaking of him and the truth that he re- reveals. Number two, I think we can't embrace that strategy, which ignores what's going on around us, because of our love for our neighbors. So our, where, where, what's the condition of our unbelieving neighbors? They have blindfolds on, and they are walking toward a cliff. OK, this is very similar to what God says about uh, the, the Ninevites. He says at the, very, at the very last verse of chapter 4, at the conclusion of the book, should I not pity the people of Nineveh who do not know their right hand from their left? You see, see what he's saying? They, they, don't, they don't know anything. They don't know the right hand from their left. They've got blindfolds on. And see, what are they doing? They're just marching toward the cliffs. And at the cliffs, there's a long drop, and then there's rocks at the bottom. They are going to destroy themselves. This is this is the condition of our neighbors. That's where they are. They are blindfolded, and they are walking toward the cliffs. And they will fall, and they will crash, and they will burn, and they will be destroyed. And we can see it happening. We see the havoc that's being, being brought into the lives of the people who are around us. We can see that the beginning of the judgments of God upon them personally and upon their families and upon their communities and upon the nation as a whole. We can see. We can read the trajectory. We see what's happening. Can we just be silent and just mind our own business? Not if we love our neighbors. Not if we are concerned about them. Not if we care for their souls. Not if we care even for their their well-being in this life. We've said many times in this church, you don't break God's laws, God's laws break you. You sow the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. And you see, it's all happening at an accelerated pace right now. The social change, the moral change, the current trajectory has rapidly increased. There's there any number of statistics that we could cite to, to show that? The point here is that is that God gives people over to their sin, and when he does, that that acceleration takes place. Romans 1. You don't want to be a people in a nation in which God gives people over to their sin. That's the language of Romans chapter 1. God gave them over to the lusts of their hearts to do what they should not do. In other words, he abandons them. He quits restrain, his restraining grace. There is a restraining grace in the world where, where God slows down the... the and and even suppresses the progress of evil. But then there's a point at which when people just go on and on and on defiantly where God just says, okay, is that what you want? Go have it. And this downward spiral then begins and the whole civilization begins to unravel to its own destruction. That's the situation that we're in. This uh, open, defiant, blatant, blatant, defiance of God, of his truth, of his word, of his uh, law, the blasphemy, the idolatry, the immorality, the injustice. We have to care about our neighbors and about the world that they're going to live in and the eternity that they're going to face. And so saying nothing is not an option. What has God called us to do? The answer is to be a prophetic witness to our civilization. How do we do that? By our words, by our priorities, by the beauty of our family life, by the practice of sacrificial love toward each other and our neighbors, and by our moral rectitude. Similarly, what has God called me as an individual to do? that I have failed to do because I'd like the courage or because it might make me uncomfortable or because it might be disruptive of my life. We need to learn from the book of Jonah. You cannot flee from God and His call and the responsibilities that He places upon us as His people. Let me again remind you of what Tim Keller said at the point at which he accepted the call to go to New York. I needed to stop Being a coward and to live more bravely. That's point number two. Point number three. God's people are so often asleep. This uh, was an urgent mission. Jonah was to go on. It now becomes even more urgent. Verse four. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea. So that the ship threatened to break up. You don't fulfill God's call. You're not obedient to his command. What's going to happen? You're going to find yourself in a storm. That's what's going to happen. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. How desperate were they? They have an expensive cargo that they're meant to deliver to the port to which they are going and they just pitch it into the sea because they see that they're about to perish. And so all this expensive, this wealth-producing cargo is just thrown overboard. But where's Jonah in all this? But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. There's all this danger. What's Jonah doing? Jonah is, I I think it's just emblematic, Here's this uh, crisis going on in Nineveh. Here's this crisis on the boat. Uh, What's Jonah doing? Oh, he's asleep. He's asleep. He's oblivious. He's unaware. He doesn't realize what's going on. He's not awake to the circumstances that are going on all around him. I think that's often the people of God. We're just unaware. We've got our heads in the sand. We're not awake to the the dangers that that we are facing, that our civilization is facing, that our neighbors are facing, that the unbelieving world is facing. Let's not fall asleep. Verse 6, it takes pagans to wake him up. Verse 6, so the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? the voice of the unbelieving, to Jonah. This is is how humiliating this is. Jonah, what are you doing? We're in danger. And like I said, this is emblematic. Nineveh is in danger. You now are in danger. What are you doing sleeping? Arise. Call out to your God. You see, these are unbelieving people. Call out to your God. They're no doubt polytheists. They think there are many gods. They have no particular god that they want him to call out to. Just call out to the god that you know about. Perhaps the god, your god, will give a thought to us that we may not perish. You see, in this situation, again, emblematic, the pagans see that their situation is unraveling. Jonah's got his eyes closed. He's asleep. And so the message of Jonah to us is, we need to call out to our God, and we need to call out to our neighbors to repent of their sin, to repent of the idolatry and morality and injustice that is all around us. Point them to the grace of a God who is ready to forgive them. How do we know that he's ready to forgive? Because he's demonstrated his love for us. Romans 5.8, in that while we were yet sinners... Christ died for us. That's a demonstration. It's a public demonstration. It it was erected right there in the middle of history, in the heart of history. A permanent display, demonstration, portrayal of the mercy of God, and of the love of God, and of the grace of God. Uh, and the the availability of forgiveness because of the sacrifice of Christ on on the cross. We need to cry out to our civilization and point them to Christ, call them to repent and call them to Christ uh, before the judgment falls in a way that is from whence there will be no retrieval. Jesus died our death He took our judgment. He extends the offer of forgiveness and reconciliation to all. We can be at one with, at peace with, fully reconciled to our maker and our lawgiver, our God, through the death, burial, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. So what's our responsibility? And not just the responsibility of the preachers, Uh, to the ordained clergy. It's uh, the responsibility of all of us to warn those who are around us, to call out to our neighbors, and to warn of the judgment of God that's coming, and to not run from that responsibility, to not flee from that responsibility, and crawl to the back of the boat and fall asleep as uh, destruction is imminent. That's our responsibility. And no, we're not all preachers, but we can live the gospel. We can portray the gospel. Our families can reflect the gospel. Our marriages can provide a picture of the gospel. Our love of neighbor can portray the sacrificial love to which Christ calls his people. As we declare and warn, 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 that the current road on which our culture, our civilization, our nation is headed, it's not sustainable. It's unraveling. And that unraveling is something of the judgments of God. He appears to have withdrawn his restraining grace and given us over. So let's pray and proclaim and live uh, the only hope that the world has, that's to be found only in the true and the living God who has made himself known through Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Our Father in heaven, we see ourselves in a Jonah-like position, a hostile world, the call to go the call to go and to cry out against the evil that is around us. And with that, the offer of forgiveness. Oh, that we would be bold. Oh, that we would be obedient. Oh, that we would be courageous. Oh, that we would disregard the price that is to be paid for faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.